welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockfire. And I'm Krista Carmen. And this is... Murder Coaster. The freeways, highways, and byways of Southern California are like black arteries streaming from the dark heart of Los Angeles, pumping the lifeblood of commerce and people in and out of the city center, from beaches and coastal communities, through urban stretches and out into the desert, from 20-lane behemoths with off-ramps curling off like the leaves of a rotten clover, to lonely, cracked asphalt threads snaking along canyons. These roads shepherd commuters to work, tourists to Disneyland and Hollywood, as well as giving passage to massive 18-wheelers bulging with agriculture, electronics, and commerce from one destination to the next. But they can also facilitate the travel of an evil beyond belief. As Jim Morrison of the seminal Los Angeles band The Doors would say, there's a killer on the road. His mind is squirming like a toad. So fill up your gas tanks and buckle your seatbelts. For today, we bring you the first episode in our three-part series on The Freeway Killers. And this episode was requested by a listener. So I want to say a big thank you to Stacy Roy Stark. This series is for you, and we hope you enjoy it. Indeed. Thank you, Stacy. Let's begin. In the late 70s and early 80s, Southern California was awash with serial killers. So much so that Los Angeles was declared the serial killer capital of the world. Tales of horror and degradation filled the newspapers and newscasts of Los Angeles on a daily basis, as corpses were found strewn across hillsides, caverns, freeway truck stops, dumpsters, even tossed out of moving vehicles. The population lived in a weird terror that juxtaposed with the free-living 1970s sunny Southern California beach image of surfers and movie stars. There were so many serial killers at work in Southern California that monikers had to be given to differentiate them. There were the notorious hillside stranglers, Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Buono, sadistic cousins who abducted and tortured young women in 1977 and 1978, leaving their bodies strewn naked about the San Gabriel foothills, some of their victims being confused with those of Rodney Alcala, who became known as the dating game killer after appearing on the iconic 70s TV game show. There was Vaughn Greenwood, the Skid Row slasher, and the truly despicable and disgusting toolbox killers, Lawrence Bittaker and Roy Lewis, abducting and torturing girls in their van in 1979, recording the horrified screaming and begging of their victims as they assaulted them with pliers. There were the Sunset Strip killers, Douglas Clark and Carol Bundy, a pair of sex-crazed necrophiliacs trawling the streets of Los Angeles in the summer of 1980. 
There was Richard Ramirez, the infamous Night Stalker, who would appear in the 80s, and the Golden State Killer, known as the original Night Stalker back in the day, who wouldn't even be identified until DNA connected him to the trail of murder, rape, and robbery from one end of California to the other. And these were just some of the many serial killers at work in Southern California. The actual number of active serial killers at work in the late 70s and early 80s is thought to be in the 20s. Nearly all of these brutal killers took advantage of the huge expanse of highways that crisscrossed the area, connecting rural enclaves and deserts with the suburbs and cities. The extensive network of freeways in Southern California allowed serial killers to quickly move between different areas, making it easier for them to target victims in multiple locations and evade law enforcement. By utilizing the freeways, they could use different parts of the city or region as dumping grounds for their victims, escaping the immediate vicinity before being noticed and further confusing an already beleaguered law enforcement. During the heyday of murder and mayhem, There were not one, not two, but three gay serial killers active at the same time, each targeting young men, particularly but not always young gay men, sexually assaulting them, murdering them, and leaving their bodies strewn about the vast roadways of Southern California. Many of the victims' hitchhikers picked up right there on the freeway that their corpses were left abandoned on. All three of these prolific and brutal serial killers became known as the freeway killer, as many of their crimes were confused with one another. The men who came to fall under this moniker of the freeway killer were Patrick Kearney, William Bonin, and Randy Kraft. Police and homicide detectives were flummoxed by the sheer number of young men turning up dead across the coastal Southern California area some believing the killings to be random and not connected in any way, some believing a serial killer or possibly even two may be at work, while others, because of the way jurisdictions didn't share information at the time, were simply unaware of how many bodies of young men were piling up, thinking when a body showed up in their jurisdiction that it was just a one-off. Further complicating matters, many of the young men murdered were drifters or runaways, and were never identified. To this day, many of their identities sadly remain unknown. Also, because many were proven to be or presumed to be gay or just part of the LGBTQ movement in one way or another, many cops, they just simply didn't care. Solving these crimes was not a priority for them. As we mentioned, At the time, many of these crimes were confusingly believed to have been perpetrated by the wrong killer. But with the aid of hindsight, we can clearly see the differences in the murders now. Each killer had a very unique modus operandi and signature. In other words, each killed and disposed of the bodies in very separate ways. Patrick Kearney would shoot his victims behind the ear before they even realized they were in danger. He was a product killer and a necrophile. He wanted the product, the dead body, to play with. When he was done sexually assaulting the corpse, he would then methodically wash the body in a bathtub, almost ritualistically, draining the blood 
and dismembering it with a hacksaw before placing the pieces in industrial waste bags and secreting them about the desert. William Bonin, on the other hand, was a process killer and a sadist. He bound his victims before raping them and relished the process of torture, strangling them with their own t-shirts, using a tire iron as a garrote. An accomplice later said he loved the sound of their screams and their struggles, and was bored with the bodies once the victim was dead, immediately dumping them, usually in back alleys beside dumpsters. Randy Kraft was a sadist as well, but he liked to drug his victims with deadly amounts of Valium and alcohol before doing unimaginably brutal things to them. Things like cutting off their eyelids and scorching their exposed eyeballs with a car lighter. He did this to them alive, but he would continue on after their deaths, often ripping off their genitals post-mortem, sometimes with his very teeth, or inserting objects into their urethra. His signature method of body disposal was to toss the corpse out onto the open road while traveling down the freeway at full speed. It wasn't just the methodologies these men used that were unique. Besides being openly gay, everything about them was different on multiple levels, personality-wise, from their childhoods and educations to their lifestyles. Their very psychological natures were different, showing how unique some of these serial killers can be, even those targeting the same victim pool at the very same time. By comparing and contrasting the histories and methodologies of these three men who were all actively targeting the same victim profile in the same place at the same time, we hope to uncover some of what it is that turns a person into a living monster, as well as dispel some of the myths and stereotypes. Serial killers come from all elements of society and can be found everywhere in the world. While all three of these men happen to be gay, the vast majority of serial killers are straight. And in that mode of thinking, if 10% of the population is gay, it appears 10% of serial killers may be gay as well. So it seems to equal out per capita. And this goes across political, social, and economic levels as well. Ted Bundy? was a straight-laced conservative Republican who campaigned for Nelson Rockefeller, while John Wayne Gacy was a blue-collar Democrat who campaigned for Jimmy Carter and was even photographed with First Lady Evelyn Carter. Robert Durst was uber-wealthy, part of the 1%, and formed one of the most powerful families in America, while Pee Wee Gaskins was raised in a shack in utter poverty. And it goes with ethnicities as well. There are African-American serial killers like Lonnie Franklin, the Grim Sleeper, as well as serial killers with Mexican heritages like Richard Ramirez. Serial killers do seem to come from every ethnic background. The only thing truly unique about them is that they're usually nearly all male, but there have been female serial killers, even sexually sadistic serial killers, akin to those we're talking about today, though these are an anomaly. Okay, so in order to understand these three freeway killers, we need to understand the car culture of California. California was one of the earliest adopters of the freeway and has more than 50,000 miles of the stuff. Because of the temperate climate, vast flat stretches, 
and the beach lifestyle of surfing and lounging in the sun, there is very much a car and motorcycle culture in California that can be seen in everything from the music to the fashion, immortalized in films like American Graffiti and Beach Boys songs like Little Deuce Coop and I Get Around. The first motorized vehicle arrived in Southern California in 1890, and just six years later, the San Bernardino Daily Sun was proclaiming the city well-fixed for the era of the horseless carriage. And by 1905, there were over 6,500 cars, trucks, and motorcycles in California, with gas stations, repair shops, and auto supply joints popping up everywhere. And in 1908, when Henry Ford introduced the mass-produced Model T, automobiles became not only affordable, but a necessity. But road construction was seriously lacking, and Southern California was isolated by the Sierra Madre Mountains and the Mojave Desert. That is, until 1926, when it was connected to the famous Route 66, which provided a direct route from Santa Monica, California, to Chicago, Illinois. And in 1940, the Arroyo Seco Parkway was put in, connecting downtown Los Angeles and Pasadena, ushering a new era of automobile travel. This would be the spine of the network of freeways that would spring around Southern California. When a more localized system of public transportation was to be installed, the auto industry stepped in, and they diverted the money from trolley services, and instead used it to construct more roads and more freeways, which directly caused Los Angeles's suburban sprawl. World War II cemented the freeway culture as workers flocked to the area for employment at shipyards, munition factories, and aerospace factories while settling in the suburbs and using the ever-expanding highway system to get back and forth. The garage, which originally had been a shed, was now connected to the home and became the main entrance, meaning you could literally drive into your home now. The car became an extension of the home itself, with drive-ups, drive-ins, and drive-throughs, a culture celebrated by films like Rubble Without a Cause and magazines like Hot Rod. And by the 1970s, this car culture was an established part of life in Southern California, and a new type of traveler was becoming common on the freeways of the perpetually warm and sunny landscape, the hitchhiker. There were the local scene-hopping kids, surfers and such, but hippies and runaways were flooding California as well, hitchhiking the freeways as they hopped from the beaches, Hollywood and the Sunset Strip, out to hip communities and communes in the surrounding mountains and desert. Many of these free-living bohemians were naive young boys, and many were gay, either relocating to California where they could be more accepted or fleeing from an unaccepting home life. It's this world where the freeway killers would hunt for victims. As the social fabric of America began to change and the Vietnam War dwindled down, Nixon resigning, the victim pool of transient young men grew larger and larger. Patrick Kearney is thought to have murdered at least 46 of these young men and boys, though the number may be much higher. Many of them were hitchhikers. He was convicted of murdering 22. Highly intelligent and equally devious, he had an IQ of 180, which is in the genius level. 
and his reign of terror lasted over 15 years from 1962 to 1977, a substantial amount of time, much longer than the average serial killer. Patrick Wayne Kearney was born in East Los Angeles on September 24, 1939, right at the start of World War II. His father, George, was a Los Angeles police officer. His mother, Eunice, was a stay-at-home mom. Patrick was the firstborn and had two younger brothers, Michael and Chester. Unlike many families of serial killers that are full of abuse and dysfunction, the Kearneys are described as wholesome, all-American. Though, like all fathers at that time, George was known to be a strict disciplinarian. When Patrick was five, the family up and moved from Southern California to Montbello, Texas, where his father had secured a job as a salesman. Patrick was a very small, sickly child with thick glasses who has been described as effeminate and was ruthlessly tormented by bullies in Texas. He describes his life in elementary school there as a living hell, and at just eight years old was already harboring violent revenge fantasies against his tormentors, daydreaming of skinning them alive. No, let's just go over that point again. In just the second grade, a child, he's fantasizing about murdering his classmates and skinning them, which at such a young age seems to point to something genetic. I mean, lots of kids are bullied. I was bullied. And they don't immediately start to harbor violent fantasies and go on to become serial killers. But at the same time, it does go to show what a deep effect bullying can have on a young psyche. Right. Bullying isn't an excuse, but it does have profound psychological ramifications. Let's take a quick look at what effect psychologists say bullying can have on a child. Bullying often erodes a child's self-esteem, making them feel unworthy, powerless, and lacking in confidence. Victims of bullying often experience symptoms of depression, and anxiety. Bullying can lead to social isolation, as victims may withdraw from what relationships and activities to avoid further bullying. This can contribute to feelings of loneliness and difficulty in forming new connections. Bullying can also seriously affect a child's grades and schoolwork, impacting a victim's ability to concentrate, negatively impacting their academic performance, which we can see with Patrick. For although he had an IQ of 180, denoting extremely gifted, his grades were middling at best. But most importantly to note, two-thirds of those bullied go on to bully themselves. Psychologists say many of those bullied will display increased aggression, impulsivity, and other forms of antisocial behavior. And as we'll see, these descriptions all match Patrick Kearney to a T. And while a lot of what creates antisocial personality disorder is today unknown, most psychologists agree it is a perfect storm of genetics and upbringing, which we can see at work in young Patrick Kearney. Patrick's father, George, was a hunter who taught Patrick about firearms from an early age. He also raised pigs and instructed Patrick in the methods of killing and butchering them. In order to avoid messy blood splatter, as well as provide a quick and painless death, Patrick's father showed him how to shoot the pig behind the ear with a 22 pistol. 
Because of the low caliber, the 22 bullet will lodge itself in the animal's brain, and there will not be an exit wound. Exit wounds are large and bleed profusely, the bullet exploding out, making quite a mess, while entrance wounds are quite small and symmetrical. So shooting livestock behind the ear with a 22 pistol is quick, efficient, and leaves very little mess behind. Patrick would take this information to heart, and it would later become his M.O. during his 15-year murder spree. Patrick became so adept at killing hogs that his father would let him kill the animals unsupervised. Patrick found it thrilling and exciting, and would often gut the animals after they were dead and roll around in the blood and viscera while fantasizing about killing people. Killing animals evidently sparked some deviant sexual element in him as well, for it is around this time that Patrick started having sex with the family dog. Oh, boy. As disgusting as this is, I think it's important, psychologically speaking, and we should take a quick look at this. Bestiality or zoology is an illegal form of animal abuse that has a surprising lack of psychological study. In the last edition of DSM-5, zoophilia is simply classified under the category other specified paraphilic disorder. While studies are rare, we did find one by psychiatrist Dr. Suhatra Satapathy, who states a person who has engaged in childhood bestiality is more likely to commit adult interpersonal crimes and should be taken as a warning signal. Psychologically, Dr. Satapathy explains, bestiality displays an emotional and sexual immaturity, difficulty in emotional attachment, internalized hostility, infantile social behavior, an inability to delay gratification of impulses, a lack of empathy, and poor self-discipline. Talk about a red flag. To me, this shows a pathological desire to dominate and control, manifesting itself on a sexual level. A dog, it's more than livestock. It's a part of the family unit. And abusing it reveals a deep lack of love and respect, signaling this is an incredibly dangerous person with a severe lack of empathy. Basically, from a very young age, Patrick Kearney is just ticking off the warning signs of an antisocial personality disorder and sociopathy. Scary, scary stuff. Tell me about it. But while the few studies we see in the psychology of bestiality typically show a person with severe learning disabilities and a very low IQ, Kearney is incredibly intelligent, which adds to the whole frightening element. And while his grades are abysmal, his intelligence displays itself in other ways. He develops a love of language. As an adolescent, he becomes fluent in Spanish, Japanese, and Chinese. Later, he had also become fluent in Russian. His fluency in Spanish will later aid him in his crimes as an adult. The Kearney family is constantly moving to Arizona, then back to Texas, Houston this time, and finally back to California again, to Redondo Beach, where Kearney graduates from high school in 1957. Because of the constant moves, he's not able to make any real or lasting friendships. And although he's a multilingual genius, his grades were terrible and he can't get accepted into a major university. 
So he enrolls in El Camino Community College, but soon drops out to enlist in the Air Force, where he hopes to put his language skills to good use and see the world. But far from being sent to exotic locales as an interpreter, the Air Force stations him in Texas, a place he despises, doing mundane office work. It's here that Patrick Kearney meets the love of his life, David Hill. They say opposites attract, and that would be the case with David Hill. While Patrick was small and bespectacled, only five foot five and scrawny, David Hill was a six foot two and muscular man. While Patrick is described as a dull and humorless nerd, Hill is said to have been sociable with an easy smile. David Hill is also said to have been quite flamboyant for late 1950s America, growing his hair down to his shoulders and often bleaching it blonde or dyeing it jet black. The two were clandestine lovers, for not only could homosexuality result in a dishonorable discharge from the military, it was an actual crime then. They could have ended up in prison if their affair had been exposed. Not surprisingly, neither of them last too long in the Air Force, and both are soon discharged. Hill receives a general discharge, meaning he wouldn't receive any GI Bill benefits. Paperwork simply states the discharge was for medical reasons, most likely meaning he'd been suspected of being homosexual. He goes back to his hometown of Lubbock, Texas, where he tries to live a straight life and marries his childhood sweetheart, though the two are soon separated. Kearney manages to get himself an honorable discharge and heads back to California, where he is able to secure a high-paying job as an electrical engineer for Hughes Aircraft Corporation, which was building military satellites. Even without a college degree, he was recognized as a highly intelligent electronics whiz and excelled at his work, taking it very seriously. The two stay in contact, basically carrying on a long-distance love affair. And in 1962, David Hill moves to California to be with his former lover. The two men live together as an openly gay couple in liberal California, which must have been a great relief for them. California was one of the only places in the country to accept homosexuality, and gay men were beginning to flock there. But David and Patrick, they weren't a part of the burgeoning LGBTQ scene which mostly revolved around gay bars, as Patrick, notoriously introverted and shy, was also too devoted to his work to socialize much, not to mention he didn't drink alcohol. While Patrick had a well-paying elite career, Hill bummed around, finding odd jobs when he could, and when the two began to squabble over money, and in the spring of 1962, Hill abruptly left to again try to live a straight life in Texas and patch up his relationship with his wife. Patrick Kearney felt utterly rejected and did not handle this well. He was, after all, a psychopathic narcissist who had been fantasizing about murder from the age of eight. And David Hill leaving would be the spark that set off the inferno of Patrick Kearney's rage. Fuming, Patrick set out on his motorcycle, cruising the freeways of Southern California with his 22 caliber Derringer pistol. At a convenience store, he met a 19-year-old young man and convinced him to take a ride on his motorcycle with him. Kearney took the young man out onto State Highway 86 to a lonely and secluded spot in the desert, 
and drawing his 22 pistol, shot him behind the ear, exactly as his father had taught him to do with pigs all those years ago. He then proceeded to undress and sexually assault the corpse. Patrick Kearney was a necrophile and a product killer. Unlike the other freeway killers we're going to cover, Kearney was not a sadist. He took no pleasure in the pain of his victims. No, he just wanted a product, namely the body, as a sexual plaything. Necrophilia is said to stem from an extreme fear of rejection. Infamous serial killer Edmund Kemper once described it like this, quote, If I killed them, they couldn't reject me. It was more or less making a doll out of a human being and carrying out my fantasies with a doll, end quote. And so started a 15-year-long rampage of murder that would claim a minimum of 46 lives. Interestingly enough, Patrick's first murder ended up a double homicide. When he realized that his victim's cousin had also been at the convenience store and had witnessed the two leaving together, he boldly went back and convinced the cousin to take a ride with him as well, where the same fate met it out. This just goes to show not only the cold and calculating efficiency of Patrick Kearney, which reveals some of why he was able to continue his murderous ways for such a long amount of time, but also his lack of both empathy and fear. David Hill, he eventually moves back to California to be with Patrick, and the two continue on with their relationship. But Patrick now has a taste for murder and necrophilia. At one point, the two are vacationing in Tijuana, and while David is sleeping off a hangover on the sofa in the living room, Patrick kills a man in the back bedroom and after sexually assaulting his lifeless body, he then drags the corpse into the bathroom to wash and cut into pieces, then buries it in the backyard of the house they were staying in, all while David was supposedly sleeping. It's like, how is that possible? Yeah, I can't fathom that. That's one bad hangover. <laughs> <laughs> and here we come upon a mystery. Namely, how much did David Hill know? Patrick claims he was somehow able to keep his murderous ways a secret from David, though by the end, he had to know something, as we'll see. Regardless, Patrick buys a house in Redondo Beach, where the two live. Neighbors and acquaintances say they did argue constantly, getting into heated screaming matches, at which point Patrick would hop into his Volkswagen bug and cruise down to Tijuana. In Mexico, Patrick Kearney used his proficiency in Spanish to pick up hustlers and gay men and murder them. Just how many men and boys he killed in Mexico is unknown. But the Mexican authorities began to notice a string of dismembered corpses, their body parts all washed clean and stuffed into garbage bags, all shot in the head with a twenty-two caliber pistol. Kearney became quite deft at driving with one hand and when noticing a passenger was distracted and looking out the window, raising the twenty-two pistol up and shooting them in the temple. He was able to accomplish this without even swerving, which attests to how calm and calculating he was in the midst of murder. Much different than William Bonin, who we'll cover ne next episode. Bonin would work himself up into a sexual frenzy before killing. For years, Kearney kept his murders south of the border, 
But that changed in 1971 when he offered a teenaged boy a ride home. He then shot him behind the ear and sexually assaulted him as he bled out before leaving him in a gully outside Calexico. It appears he'd grown so used to murder and was so confident, he felt he no longer had to keep his activities sequestered to another country. As we mentioned earlier, the late 60s saw an incredible influx of disillusioned youth flocking to California to live the hippie lifestyle. Many of these runaways ended up destitute and on the street, turning to prostitution to make ends meet. Nearly all of them relied on hitchhiking as a mode of transportation. And while many states, such as Florida, were criminalizing homosexuality, California was very accepting, eventually passing the Consenting Adults Bill in 1975 with legalized gay sex for those over 21. Now, young gay men, many of them disowned by their families and kicked out into the streets, were also flocking to California. Kearney took advantage of the stream of youth seeking a new life in the Golden State. So Kearney hunted not only the freeways looking for hippie hitchhikers, but also cruised parks and areas where gay men were known to prostitute themselves. He would proposition them, and then once in the car, he would shoot them in the temple, then take the body back to his house to wash and assault, dismembering it in his bathtub and placing the parts in industrial garbage bags he secured from his work, then putting the industrial bags into normal, plain-looking garbage bags and dumping them in landfills or the side of the road. This earned him the moniker the Trash Bag Killer. Kearney was thin, bespectacled, and quite short. And he would later claim he targeted men who were much taller. Men he claimed looked mean. Men who resembled the bullies who had tormented him back in elementary school. He claimed his murders were some sort of misguided and deviant revenge. But at one point, his victim profile and means of killing changed in a truly heartbreaking and soul-wrenching manner when he murdered five-year-old Ronald Smith, who Patrick tortured and strangled to death. Why this change? We can only surmise. Perhaps some kind of rage overwhelmed him, or maybe like a drug addict, he needed to increase the brutality and deviance to a new level to maintain his high. It's just unbelievably tragic and horrible and really displays such a lack of empathy and humanity. Beyond awful. As much as we try to understand them, in many ways, these monsters are truly an enigma. It makes them so much more terrifying. Right? Uh, by 1975, Kearney is killing steadily and once a month, leaving garbage bags of dismembered bodies scattered about Southern California. He's also obsessing over other serial killers, in particular, Dean Coral, the Candy Man, another killer of young men and teenagers. Patrick reads everything he can about Dean Coral and saves the newspaper clippings in a scrapbook. Dean Coral, also known as the Candy Man, because he manufactured pecan sweets, abducted, raped, and murdered over 28 boys and men between 1970 and 1973 in Houston, Texas, with the help of two teenage accomplices, 
one of whom, Elmer Wayne Henley, shot him dead right in the act of torturing a boy. It's interesting that Kearney obsessed over Dean Coral so much because Dean was so different than Kearney in so many ways. While Dean was a homosexual serial killer who killed teenage boys like Kearney, he was not openly gay. He hid his sexuality. The only ones who were aware of Dean's homosexuality were his accomplices, which is another difference between the two. While Kearney kept his killings a closely guarded secret, Dean had several teenage accomplices he'd pay to bring him boys. And unlike Kearney, Dean was very much a process killer. He was a true sexual sadist who relished torture, chaining his victims to a piece of plywood, much like John Wayne Gacy would do later. Maybe it was this fascination that led Kearney to experiment with torture and pedophilia when he killed Ronald Smith. You'll never know. What's interesting is that no one seemed to notice anything amiss. His supervisor at Hughes Aircraft referred to him as, quote, the model worker. The only one who ever thought anything off about him was a grocery store owner whom Kearney would buy butcher knives from, examining them closely and inquiring about the quality of the steel. The store owner would simply state Kearney had, quote, an eerie sense of quiet about him. In fact, it seems Kearney had an uncanny way of putting people at ease, as can be seen with Tony Stewart. Tony, who had just graduated from high school, was your typical Southern California kid whose life revolved around surfing, skateboarding, girls, and partying. One day, Tony was hanging out, trying to find someone to buy him a few beers, when he saw Kearney pulling up. Tony knew Kearney. He had mowed his lawn for him for years and asked him if he would buy him some beer. Kearney, who, as you may remember, didn't drink, acted amused and told the teenager, sure, he'd get him some beer, but he'd have to drink them at his house because he didn't want him to get in any trouble drinking underage. The young surfer readily agreed, and after Kearney purchased a six-pack, the two headed off to Kearney's place. While Tony sat on the sofa drinking a cold one, Kearney asked if he could listen to his heartbeat with a stethoscope, saying he's curious if the alcohol will make his heart rate slow down. Now, you think this would be a big red flag. I mean, it's weird as hell. This kid is straight, just a surfer guy. And when Kearney places the stethoscope to his chest and tells him he can't hear it over his shirt and asks him to remove his shirt, the kid just takes it right off for Kearney. The kid is putty in Kearney's manipulative hands. And we should point out that narcissistic psychopaths are often master manipulators. And Kearney, well, with an IQ of 180, it's just scary how good he is. Luckily, at this moment, David Hill came walking in the door. He scowled at the two for a second before walking into his bedroom. Kearney followed him, and Tony could hear the two arguing. And finally, Kearney saying, all right, I'll drive him home. Which begs the question, did Hill understand what was about to happen? What had he just walked into? But it all seemed to dawn on Tony, who was suddenly overcome with a sense of dread. On the ride home, Kearney was dead silent, while Tony blathered on nervously, thanking him for the beer and saying how good it was to see him again. Then Kearney turned to him slowly, 
locked eyes and said, promise me you'll come back again. Come back again soon. Tony is overcome with fear now. Something about Kearney just is not right. They say psychopathic serial killers wear a mask of sanity. They show the world that they learn what society expects and wants to see in a person and mimic it to put people at ease, pretending to be normal, happy people when in actuality they are empty, soulless beings obsessed with murder and sexual degradation. Could Kearney have let his mask slip here? Could Tony have seen his true face? At this point, Tony panics. He points to a random house and says, that's my house there. Just let me out. Kearney does and watches as Tony approaches the house, going around the side and waiting for Kearney to leave. When he did, Tony bolted down the street to his own house, only to see Kearney do a U-turn and come back, as if to ascertain if it was the right house or not. Tony ducked behind a fence and hid until Kearney's car disappeared again. Lucky guy. It wouldn't be until much later that Tony realized just how lucky he was. As Kearney, he continued on with his murderous ways. Only five days later, Kearney picked up 17-year-old Larry Epsi hitchhiking. His body would be found in multiple garbage bags scattered about the desert. And the attacks continued to escalate through the fall of 1976 as body after body after body was found washed, dismembered, bloodless, and sealed in industrial waste bags throughout the freeways of Southern California. In January of 1977, finally an end would be in sight. Unfortunately, it would be with the tragic murder of John LeMay. John was a 17-year-old kid with long blonde hair from El Segundo. He was friends with David Hill and had gone over to the house in Redondo Beach to party with the two men, telling friends he was going to crash at his friends Dave and Pat's house. It was no big deal. He'd crashed there before after a night of drinking beer and watching television with his buddy David Hill. But David Hill wasn't home when John arrived, only Patrick, who invited John in to watch television while they waited for David. They sat on the sofa watching television together. Kearney would later tell investigators that he was irritated when the teenager got up and changed the channel. So Patrick retrieved his twenty-two Derringer, slipped behind him, and shot him in the back of the head. He fucking shot him for changing the channel. So he says. So fucked up. Nervous, his lover, David Hill, would be upset that he had murdered his friend. Kearney hid the body in a closet, waiting for the right opportunity to drag it to the bathroom where he could drain it of its blood, wash it, and dismember it with a hacksaw. Five days later, police would find the body parts in the desert south of Corona, sealed in five industrial trash bags. But unlike Patrick's other victims, the head, hands, and feet were missing in an obvious effort at hiding the victim's identity. Kearney knew, unlike the hitchhikers, transients, hippies, and hustlers he normally targeted, this victim could be traced back to him. So he took every precaution in hiding the identity. Not only were the head, hands, and feet missing, some of the body parts have been discovered a slight distance away in a sealed, 
50-gallon oil drum. But as intelligent, ruthless, cunning, and cold-blooded as Patrick Kearney was, his crimes had to catch up with him because John LeMay had a rare kidney configuration as well as a birthmark. Homicide detectives were able to identify him. Also, because John wasn't a transient hippie or gay hustler, but a local boy with a good family who were vocally upset, cops actually set out to solve this crime, which, while good for this case, is a sad reflection on society and law enforcement that vagabonds and those forced to eke out a living on the streets through sex work often aren't deemed important enough to merit a full investigation. These unfortunate souls are often labeled as the less dead. And we're going to get into that sad phenomenon and how it helped let these three brutal killers on their twisted rampages later in the series. So homicide detectives identify John and are quickly questioning his friends and family as to his last whereabouts. After hearing that he was last known to be going to his friend David Hills, authorities quickly determined Kearney's address and proceeded to the location. When law enforcement arrived at the Redondo Beach House, both Patrick and David were home and invited the detectives inside, all smiles and hospitality. At this point, it's hard to say if David Hill even had an inkling of what was going on. Detectives noticed the distinct blue carpet and took fiber samples, which matched fibers found on John's body and fibers stuck on the tape used to seal those garbage bags. They soon returned again, this time demanding pubic hair from both the men, as well as hair from their white poodle. Oops, did we forget to mention they had a white poodle? Because they did. White poodle. Okay. (laughs) And man, those carpet fibers, they always get you. So when police arrived for that second time, now demanding pubic hair samples, Kearney knew the gig was up. He was very intelligent after all, and he'd been skilled enough to get away with murder for 15 years. In an action that really displays just how sick he'd become, how bloodthirsty and addicted to murder he was. With homicide detectives actively investigate him, he goes out and kills one more time. And it's an act that demonstrates just how cruel and lacking empathy he was, because this time Patrick Kearney's target is an eight-year-old boy riding his bicycle, an innocent little boy named Merle Hondo. In a sad twist of terrible irony, the boy's friends all said he was known to protect younger boys from bullies. Hmm, man. Detectives, in an action that kind of boggles the mind, then called Kearney on the phone to tell him the fibers, pubic hair, and dog hair all matched those found on the body of John LeMay, and warning him that they were coming to the house with a search warrant. Like, what the fuck? Why would you tell him you were coming? Wouldn't you be worried he'd either destroy evidence or go on the run? Yeah, I would be worried, and Patrick Kearney does both. He immediately disposed of his scrapbook of Dean Corll's murders, a sad and mildly amusing fact, flushing his cherished newspaper clippings about this soulless absolute monster of a man down the toilet. He then contacts his boss at Hughes Aircraft and resigns. 
and in an action that shows how square he was, how from a generation where responsibility was just hammered into you, he mails his badge back and then tells his grandmother to pay all his bills for him. Like, dude, you're a ruthless, remorseless serial killer with homicide detectives hot on your trail, going on the run, but you have to make sure those bills are paid and your employer is officially notified and receives your badge. What the hell? That really does boggle the mind. It's, oh my God, the badge thing kills me. Okay, so Kearney and Hill flee. And at this point, Hill has to know, right? I mean, it's beyond a doubt. They're literally on the run for murder together. Right? Uh, homicide detectives, uh, they search the deserted house and they find traces of blood basically everywhere, but especially the bathroom. Uh, they find the distinct industrial waste bags from his work that he'd been disposing the bodies in for over a decade and a half and the nylon tape Kearney used to seal them with. It's kind of amazing to me they didn't trace the industrial waste bags to that workplace in the first place. Like, you'd think that that would have been one of the first things they would do is try to determine where those bags were coming from. Right? Uh, I was thinking the same thing. They also find a hacksaw with the dried remains of John LeMay's flesh and blood on it. Our outlaw lovers head to Hill's mother's house in El Paso, Texas, but she refuses to let them stay. Not because they're on the run for murder, oh no, but because they were gay, which just, ugh. When murder is less of an issue than the sexual orientation of your son and his partner, maybe you need to take a deep look at your priorities. Right. And uh, instead of going full on Thelma and Louise or Bonnie and Clyde, which surprises me because the Mexican border was right there. They were on it. The two men, they just decided to drive back to California and turn themselves in. Maybe David talked some sense into Kearney. Who knows? And that must have been one depressing road trip back to California. <laughs> totally. Kearney, when he gets there and turns himself in, Oddly enough, he asks detectives if the death penalty will be taken off the table if he confesses. Detectives readily agree. No death penalty if he tells them everything. They promise. Which is utterly ridiculous because there was no death penalty in California at the time. The California Supreme Court had found it unconstitutional as it was a cruel and unusual punishment. And how could someone with an IQ of 180 a fucking master criminal, not know this. Perhaps he was just looking for an excuse to bear his soul. I don't know. So weird. But Kearney breaks down and confesses to 28 murders. But he leaves out the years of killing in Mexico. I don't know. Maybe he was afraid of doing time in a Mexican prison. Jeez. He claims his lover David Hill had no idea about any of it and is completely innocent. Which leaves me wondering, was he just so mathematically minded and old-fashioned <clears throat> that he told the truth? Or did he have some sense of affection for David? Was Patrick capable of love? Maybe he just wanted somebody on the outside to send him letters. Who knows? He tells detectives he killed mostly when Hill was out of town and was once so scared that Hill would discover what he was up to that he kept the body in the closet for days, 
waiting for the chance to dispose of it. And a grand jury acquits David Hill of all charges, and he walks free. And uh, just on a side note, he never gave an interview, never said anything. So we have no idea what he knew or didn't know. And Kearney, he was given 21 life sentences. The judge saying he was an insult to humanity. And to this day, Patrick Kearney sits in Mule Creek State Prison. He's now 83 years old. And there you have it. Life and Crimes of Patrick Wayne Kearney, the first of three serial killers who would be dubbed the Freeway Killer. He's a complicated character for a soulless and remorseless necrophiliac serial killer. So many contradictions at work. One thing we can say about him is that he was a nerd. Thick glasses with the black plastic frames, always wearing a buttoned-up white shirt, working for Hughes Aircraft Corporation in the design of military satellites. He fit the stereotype in every way. An angry nerd who spent a lifetime retaliating against the bullies, and in doing so, became a literal monster that murdered, among others, innocent little children. Just a sad, pathetic life, really. Yeah, it's crazy to think that he's still sitting in prison for all that he did, and you do have to wonder if he ever feels remorse, what what he thinks about any of it. I don't think any of the, these three people that we're going to talk about, I don't think any of them have any remorse at all. Yeah, None of them really sure. show it. Crazy. Yeah. Well, on that note, that's going to do it for today. But we'll be back next week for a deep dive into the freeway killer roaming the highways of Los Angeles in the 1970s, William Bonin. While Patrick Kearney was a pathetic little nerd who liked to surprise his victims with a gunshot to the head so he could play around with their corpses, we'll see that his counterpart, William Bonin, is the exact opposite. A decorated Vietnam War hero, with over 700 hours of active combat, he delighted in the screams of his victims and kept them alive as long as he possibly could. So, be sure to turn in next week for part two of our Freeway Killer series. And as always, fellow freaks and dear listeners, thanks so much for tuning in. And hey, we want to hear from you. Have a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? Or do you just want to say hi? Drop us a line at MurderCoasterPodcast at gmail.com That's MurderCoasterPodcast at gmail.com Catch you next time.